You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio and your source for all mental health-related news, including anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments and the causes of mental illness, along the way better educating the general public about mental health issues and reducing the stigma associated with have now having a psychiatric diagnosis that with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry and without the hype and distortion of other media sources. And welcome again to this edition of Psychiatry Today, pre-recorded to be aired first on February 11th, 2015. And I see the top mental health story from this past week as a survey about how people feel about the economy because it turns out that people's economic financial situation is the thing that this survey discovered we are all most stressed about. Even with the United States economy strongly on the rebound, Americans are more stressed about money than ever, and the financial strain is harming the nation's health. The American Psychological Association's Stress in America survey results for 2014, which were released on February 4th, shows that 72% of adults report feeling stressed about money at least some of the time. That's almost three quarters. And 22% say, almost one quarter, that they experience extreme stress about money. Wow, talk about the difference between the 1% and the rest of us, right? Top reported triggers include paying for unexpected expenses, paying for essentials, and saving for retirement. That's got to be huge. And they didn't even mention things like credit card debt and student loan debt. Now, while money generally stresses people out across the board, the survey finds that the hardest hit in terms of stress are parents, millennials, Generation Xers, and lower-income households, that is, those bringing in less than $50,000 per year. In other words, anyone besides wealthy baby boomers without children to support. Women shoulder much of the burden. Far more women than men say they have lain awake at night in the past month due to stress, 51%, compared with 32% of men. For the first time, the annual report shows a disturbing trend. All of this financial strain is negatively affecting Americans' health. Parents are more likely than non-parents to report engaging in unhealthy stress management techniques, 
such as drinking alcohol and smoking. And I take issue with how the article characterizes those as stress management techniques. At best, they're extremely maladaptive coping behaviors. 32% of adults say that their lack of money prevents them from living a healthy lifestyle, while 12% report skipping going to the doctor because of financial concerns. There are certainly costs associated with taking care of yourself. When you go see the doctor, inevitably there are going to be costs for the visits and the tests that the doctor will order and the prescriptions the doctor will prescribe that are not going to be covered entirely by health insurance and that's going to come out of your pocket. Likewise, let's uh, look at eating healthy. It costs a lot of money to buy healthy food compared to much less expensive, very unhealthy food. Now, <clears throat> almost a third of adults with partners, 31%, report that money is a major source of conflict in their relationships. There is some good news. Stress as a whole is trending downward, with lower overall levels reported now than in 2007. But that stress is still way too high, despite the good news that overall stress levels are down it appears that the idea of living with stress higher than what we believe to be healthy and dealing with it in ineffective ways continues to be embedded in our culture. That, according to Norman B. Anderson, the Executive Vice President of the American Psychological Association, chronic stress is directly linked to numerous health issues including high blood pressure, ulcers, irritable bowel syndrome, headaches, and depression. As difficult as it is to find a way to relieve the mind when life is a pressure cooker of stress, taking a moment to care for oneself is incredibly important. Studies repeatedly show that one of the best ways to reduce stress is with exercise which lowers stress hormone levels in your body. And it doesn't mean spending hours at a gym every day, which, as long as we're talking about financial concerns, would entail an expensive contract or even an inexpensive one can add up over time and maybe entail fancy workout clothes or equipment. Not at all. Experts agree even a simple walk around the block for a few minutes can do a world of good for the body and the mind. And all that's needed for that is a pair of modest exercise shoes, nothing fancy. And if that few minutes could be extended to 20, 30 every day, and once you're used to that, expand that to 45, you would be amazed at the improvement in your physical and mental health both. <clears throat> Would it change your financial situation? No, uh, but it would make any and all stress, whether it's financial or otherwise, easier to cope with. Next on Psychiatry Today, I have a veterans and military mental health update for you. 
It is an article about how cognitive behavioral therapy to treat insomnia has an unexpected benefit in veterans and not only helps them sleep better, but it reduces the incidence of suicidal thoughts in veterans. And there's a couple of reasons why it's both important and poignant for me to bring this up at this time. First of all, this study has potential benefits for the civilian population as well, uh, because there's already been a significant body of research to document that cognitive behavioral therapy is a more effective treatment for insomnia in the long run than any type of medication, especially sleeping pills. And where it concerns what can be done to alleviate suicidal thinking and behavior in veterans, this is especially poignant uh, since a couple of weeks ago in uh, Cobb County here in the metro Atlanta area, uh, a female veteran took her own life and that of her young children despite the fact that she was under the care of the mental health division of the Veterans Administration and missed three appointments and was known to be a risk for suicide. Now, I am not going to engage in finger-pointing. Clearly, some things went wrong. It is still under active investigation for the uh, Atlanta VA Hospital and, and clinic where several years ago there were some uh, lives lost uh, for people who had mental health issues. A new director was brought in. Changes were promised. Changes indeed were made. So how this could happen is very disturbing. But uh, it's under active investigation. There may have been factors related to the clinicians who participated in her care. Uh, there certainly may have been factors related to the veteran herself. In any case, though, it is a terrible tragedy. Uh, It reminds us of the increased incidence of suicide in our military veterans. And again, so it's important that this research documents something that may alleviate that. And in this case, a treatment that was initiated in order to relieve insomnia. So let's take a look at the study And again, keep in mind how this should also benefit people in the civilian population who suffer from insomnia. Apparently, this new study is the first one to show that treatment of insomnia, specifically in veterans, is associated with a significant reduction in suicidal thinking. Results show that suicidal thinking decreased by 33%, a third, following up to six sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Further analysis found that the reduction in insomnia severity achieved during the cognitive behavioral therapy was associated with a concurrent decrease in the odds of suicidal thinking, and this relationship remained significant after the researchers controlled or potential confounding factors, such as any change in the severity of depression. The wide-ranging effects 
of this cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia that were found in the study were eye-opening. In addition to improving insomnia and reducing suicidal thoughts, the cognitive behavioral therapy led to improvements in depression and quality of life, which suggests that focusing greater attention on detecting and treating insomnia could produce substantial public health benefits. The study results are published in the February issue of the journal Sleep. Chronic insomnia is especially common among veterans who have put their lives at risk in service to our country. And therefore, it's very important for the best options to treat this insomnia to be explored. We'll continue our discussion of this study and have more mental health issues when we come back from our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all the psychiatric news. And we're talking about how cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in veterans not only helps them sleep, reduces their tendency to have suicidal thoughts. This is something that obviously can also help the civilian population. The study emphasizes that effectively treating insomnia can be life-changing and potentially life-saving for veterans who may be struggling with problems such as depression, suicidal thoughts, and post-traumatic stress disorder. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine 
reports that about 10% of people have chronic insomnia disorder, which involves a sleep disturbance and associated daytime symptoms that have been present for at least three months. About 15 to 20% of adults have short-term insomnia disorder, and more than half of veterans who served in Iraq or Afghanistan report symptoms of insomnia. The evaluation included a total of 405 veterans with diagnosed insomnia disorder who received cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in routine primary care and mental health treatment settings. The majority of participants were men, and the mean patient age was 52 years. About 83% of veterans reported conflict experience, including 150 who served in Vietnam and 83 who served in Iraq or Afghanistan as part of Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom, and Operation New Dawn. Patients received cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia from therapists newly trained in the therapy as part of the national dissemination of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia in the United States Department of Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. The effectiveness and feasibility of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia for implementation suggests that there is considerable opportunity for broad dissemination of it in other healthcare systems. And that's the key. So I've emphasized more than once that this type of treatment could also benefit the civilian population. But whereas the Department of Veterans Affairs disseminated the training uh, on this therapy in clinicians in their system, where would the civilian population access treatment like this? Well, it would depend on finding, finding clinicians who had had such training. Admittedly, not such an easy thing to do. Uh, there are not enough clinicians who are practiced in and highly effective and qualified and trained to do cognitive behavioral therapy that is right out of the manual as it's taught and supposed to be practiced, and probably even fewer who specifically have had training in using cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Uh, having said that, if a patient were lucky enough to be able to find a clinician who was properly trained and practiced in these techniques, uh, there is no doubt that it would result in improved sleep and Now we know that improving sleep with this type of cognitive behavioral therapy results in many other positive aspects of mental health. Next up on tonight's show, we're going to move from Veterans Health Update to a Stress and the Workplace Update. Uh, if you were listening carefully to the end of last week's show, I had said something about trying to discuss this article. Turns out I ran out of time, so I never got to it. But we'll get to it this week for sure. It's, would you tell your manager that you had a mental health problem? 
So strictly speaking, not specifically related to stress in the workplace, but uh, certainly a very important workplace and mental health issue. Although nearly four in ten workers would not tell their manager if they had a mental health problem, half said that if they knew about a co-worker's illness, they would desire to help. This, according to a new survey by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, the survey reveals that workers have both negative and supportive attitudes about mental health in the workplace. The study was published in the International Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. A significant number of working people have mental health problems or have taken a disability leave related to mental health. Annually, almost 3% of workers are on a short-term disability leave related to mental illness. Stigma is a barrier to people seeking help. Yet by getting treatment, it would benefit the worker and the workplace and minimize productivity loss. In the survey of over 2,200 working adults, two key questions were asked. First, would you inform your manager if you had a mental health problem? And second, if a colleague had a mental health problem, would you be concerned about how work would be affected? Researchers then probed more deeply depending on the answers. Among the 38% who would not tell their manager, more than half were afraid that it would affect their careers. Other reasons for not disclosing were the bad experiences of others who came forward. Fear of losing friends or a combination of these reasons. Three in ten people said they wouldn't tell because it, it wouldn't affect their work. Now, a positive relationship with their manager was the key reason given by those who would reveal that they had a mental health problem. Supportive organizational policies were another factor influencing the decision to come forward, which was cited by half of those who would disclose. Some findings in the current survey underscore why people may be reluctant to reveal a mental health problem at work. When asked if they'd be concerned if a worker had a mental illness, 64% said yes. More than 4 in 10 also indicated concerns about both reliability and safety. Past research has shown that workers with depression who receive treatment are more productive than those who don't. Without disclosing, it may be difficult to get treatment as work absences for counseling sessions or appointments need to be accounted for. And safety issues can also be alleviated through workplace policies and procedures, as well as a trusting relationship with a manager. The manager's position is so important, and it's really important to invest in training them. On a more positive note, one surprising thing that was found in the study 
was that 50% said they were concerned because they'd want to help their co-worker. About one in five also worried about making the mental health problem worse. For organizations who want to address the issue of stigma around mental illness, a number of elements need to be in place, including their policies and procedures, as well as facilitating positive relationships among managers and co-workers. Having a positive example of supporting someone with a mental health problem is also helpful. The bottom line is that I think the majority of people are still going to be very concerned about disclosing their mental health problem to their manager. Uh, we cannot ignore the fact that while progress has been made, there's still a tremendous amount of stigma when it comes to mental health issues, and people are concerned about disclosing this to their coworkers, much less their supervisors, for fear that they will somehow be seen with less esteem in others' eyes. Furthermore, we also know that people will worry about having a negative impact on their continued employment. <clears throat> the ugly truth that some people who have disclosed mental health problems in order to justify being out of work for therapy sessions or psychiatrist appointments uh, or having to take FMLA time, Family Medical Leave Act time, for their mental illness symptoms do wind up being marginalized and eventually terminated, especially in uh, right-to-work states, including Georgia. Um, and while it certainly cannot be proved and employers will come up with other justifications for things like uh, sanctions, performance improvement plans, and then eventual termination, it's pretty transparent that the mental health problems and uh, the absences from work as a result of it played a direct role in those employees being terminated. The article points out that an employee with depression who's getting the proper care is more productive than the much more common situation where there is an employee who is not getting help for depression yet continues to come to work and is not productive at all. This is called presenteeism as opposed to absenteeism where the worker is not physically at the workplace. Presenteeism is where the worker is at work physically, but because of some problem or issue, and in this case it's depression, they are not able to be productive at their work, not getting their work done up to their standard. And we, we know from a lot of previous research that depression is a major cause of presenteeism and that it has a major negative impact on the economics of businesses because of this lack of productivity. And it's also very interesting to me to note that a positive relationship with a manager and their workers, which you would hope should always be the case in any workplace, would make it easier for people to disclose their mental health problem. Unfortunately, in some situations, people are forced to have to disclose it or feel like they are in order to justify 
impaired performance or absences, hoping that the disclosure will help them keep their job. Well, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. We are now going to turn our attention to a fascinating new study that shows that such diverse psychiatric illnesses as schizophrenia, depression, and addiction show the same sorts of of changes in the brain, somewhat excitingly and tantalizingly indicating that these disparate illnesses may be caused by the same underlying process. And hopefully, information like this would lead to much more exact psychiatric diagnosis. An analysis of 193 brain imaging studies shows similar gray matter loss in the brains of people with diagnoses as different as schizophrenia, depression, and addiction. In a study analyzing whole brain images from nearly 16,000 people, researchers at the Stanford University School of Medicine identified a common pattern across a spectrum of psychiatric disorders that are widely perceived to be quite distinct. The meta-analysis of these 193 peer-reviewed papers, published in the February 4 issue of Journal of the AMA Psychiatry, reports a loss of gray matter in three brain structures that, although physically separate, participate in a network associated with high-level functions, including planning and decision-making. The findings call into question a long-standing tendency to distinguish psychiatric disorders chiefly by their symptoms rather than their underlying brain pathology. In any given year, nearly one in five Americans meets the criteria for a diagnosis of psychiatric illness. 
the idea that these disorders share some common brain architecture and that some functions could be abnormal across so many of them is intriguing. The researchers drew on component studies that have been around for some time, but these studies tended to focus on one or another psychiatric disorder in isolation, whereas the Stanford investigators have stepped back from the trees to look at the forest and see a pattern in that forest that wasn't apparent when you just look at the trees. Despite experienced clinicians' intuitive grasp of the blurred lines separating diverse psychiatric conditions, there's nonetheless often an assumption that these disorders, traditionally classified on the basis of predominant symptoms, are discrete in reality. Stanford researchers tried to ask a basic question that hasn't been asked. Is there any common biological basis for mental illness? To address that question, they pooled data from 193 separate studies containing, in all, magnetic resonance images, or MRIs, of the brains of 7,381 patients falling into six diagnostic categories, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depression, addiction, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and a cluster of related anxiety disorders. Comparing the images with those from 8,511 healthy control subjects, the research team identified three separate brain structures several centimeters apart from one another, with a diminished volume of gray matter. Now, gray matter is the brain tissue that serves to process information. This is the bodies of the cells in the brain, whereas white matter are the uh, long parts of the cell that conduct information throughout the brain, and they're usually covered with a, a myelin sheath uh, which gives them a white appearance, hence white matter. Now, these structures that they found with diminished gray matter were the left and right anterior insula and the dorsal anterior cingulate. These structures are known to be parts of a larger network in the brain whose component parts tend to fire in synchrony. This network is associated with higher level executive functions, such as concentrating in the face of distractions, multitasking or task switching, planning and decision making, and inhibition of counterproductive impulses. So think about it. Problem with that process could be underlying so many different psychiatric illnesses. The gray matter loss in the, these three brain structures was similar across patients with different psychiatric conditions. These structures can be viewed as the alarm bell of the brain. They work together, signaling to other brain regions when reality deviates from expectations, that something important and unpredicted has happened or something important has failed to happen. That signaling guides future behavior 
in directions more likely to obtain the desired results. Now, there were some incongruities. In addition to gray matter loss in these three structures, people diagnosed with major depression also had gray matter loss in other structures, including the hippocampus and the amygdala, two key areas involved in storing memories and processing emotions associated with these memories. Schizophrenia was marked by reduced gray matter in several other structures, as well as an increase in gray matter in a region called the striatum. Further analysis showed that gray matter shrinkage in the three implicated brain structures was independent of any medication effects or overlapping psychiatric conditions. Thus, in the schizophrenics, it made it seem like the increased gray matter in the striatum was more due to the disorder and not due to the antipsychotic medications that are commonly prescribed for those patients. Next, researchers turned to three large databases containing both structural and functional MRI scans of healthy subjects. Among healthy people, gray matter volume in the right and left anterior insula and the dorsal anterior cingulate correlated with performance on classic tests of executive function. Such a test might involve, for example, asking the test taker to note the color of the word blue displayed in a color other than blue after seeing it briefly flashed on a screen. This finding strengthens evidence that among psychiatric patients, the generally observed gray matter loss in brain structures associated with executive function is behaviorally significant. In other words, someone with a loss of gray matter in these important structures would have a hard time distinguishing the fact that the word is in and of itself a color, but the letters of the word may appear in a different color other than blue. The discovery that psychiatric disorders typically studied in isolation from one another turn out to share a common structural deficit mirrors, in some respects, a genetic analysis conducted in 2013 by researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital that showed shared genetic glitches among several categories of mental illness. But this is the first imaging study to do so. Well, it is an exciting development in terms of refining diagnosis of mental illness and potentially looking for uh, perhaps even some sort of final common biological pathway which causes mental illness, although it may be manifested differently with different symptoms in different patients. As yet, we in psychiatry diagnose illness not by doing laboratory testing or imaging studies, but by talking to patients, asking them questions about their symptoms, and based on the symptoms they report, categorizing their symptoms into one or another disorder or syndrome or illness. This type of imaging study points the way to a day when we may actually 
make a diagnosis of a mental illness by sending a patient to an imaging center and getting an MRI of their brain. Uh, this, unfortunately, as of yet, is still science fiction, uh, but we would love to be able to have a more exact, standardized way of diagnosing mental illness. Now, in some ways, what we just talked about relates to some degree to the next article that I'm going to bring up because it's about how your brain ignores distractions. And if you remember in the article we just discussed, one of the functions of this three-structure brain network that is found to be damaged in so many different psychiatric illnesses has to do with paying attention and screening out unimportant stimuli. And this next article, again, talks about how your brain ignores distractions, which we just heard can go wrong in a wide variety of different mental illnesses. From the feeling of clothes against the skin to the sounds of cocktail party chatter, the human brain is constantly blocking out information that could be distracting. Now, a new study reveals how the brain achieves this ignoring feat. In the study, researchers scanned people's brains while someone was lightly tapping on the participants' fingers and toes. When the researchers told the participants to ignore the feelings in their hands and feet, the scans showed more synchrony between brain waves in different parts of the brain. Moment by moment, we're really only doing one thing. We have to block things in the sensory and internal world. And this reminds me of other research that has shown the concept of multitasking, attending to one thing uh, while doing another or vice versa, is a fallacy or even a fantasy at worst. Uh, research shows that when we attempt to do this, we do so to our detriment or uh, at least we're not doing either task as efficiently as we think we are or if we would just focus on one at a time. All right, we'll take another commercial break right here. We'll be back about how the brain manages to deal with distractions. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, the show with all the latest mental health-related news, and your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about how research shows how the brain ignores distractions. In addition to helping scientists understand how the brain works, this research has the potential to help people with chronic pain. They're moving into an area of thinking about how to use non-invasive brain stimulation to help with pain processing. The thinking being that if you can learn how the brain ignores certain stimuli, maybe you could get it to ignore pain and therefore alleviate the suffering of chronic pain sufferers. To find out what goes on in the brain when it ignores distractions, researchers put 12 volunteers in a magnetoencephalography or MEG scanner which reveals images of the rapidly changing magnetic fields that are produced by brain activity. The researchers told the volunteers they would feel taps on their left middle finger and their left big toe. In some cases, the participants were told to pay attention to the sensations in their finger and ignore those in their toe, and in others, they were told to pay attention to their toe and ignore their finger. Researchers used the MEG scanners to look at the synchrony between part of the somatosensory cortex, which processes touch in the hand, and the right inferior frontal cortex, which is thought to be involved in blocking out information. The researchers saw an increase in the synchrony between the hand area of the brain and this area that's involved in blocking out information when the volunteers were told to only pay attention to the feelings in their foot and ignore those in their hand. This increased synchrony suggests that there's some sort of coordination between part of the brain that processes information from the hand and the part involved in blocking out distractions. Understanding how brain rhythms change when people ignore things in their environment 
isn't just an academic pursuit. It could be useful in treating people with chronic pain who often are not helped by existing treatments. For example, technologies like transcranial magnetic stimulation or the newer transcranial direct current stimulation, which involve creating tiny magnetic or electrical fields in the brain, may be able to help people block out pain by producing the right patterns of brain activity. Previous research suggests that ignoring parts of the body is something the brain can be trained to do. One of the study's authors previously did a study in which participants underwent the tapping task before and after meditation. She found that after meditation, people were able to shift their attention to different parts of their bodies faster and to a greater extent than before. And this is how the technique could be found to be useful to distract the brain from noxious stimuli such as pain. Now, this idea of having trouble screening out inappropriate distractions, in other words, when this system in the brain goes wrong, is found to be underlying many different psychiatric illnesses, not just ADHD, but also schizophrenia and post-traumatic stress disorder. So being able to train the brain to block out inappropriate stimuli certainly uh, could potentially have a broad range of benefits. Next up on tonight's show, a psychiatry and the law update. Research finds that psychopathic violent offenders' brains can't understand punishment. Now, before I even get into this article, a big important disclaimer. The article, and my discussing it with you, does not have in any way, shape, or form anything to do with excusing these people from the horrific behaviors they engage in. It is simply a way of trying to understand how someone could engage in this behavior and uh, repeatedly and excessively without remorse. Psychopathic violent offenders have abnormalities in the parts of their brain related to learning from punishment, according to an MRI study. One in five violent offenders is a psychopath. They have higher rates of recidivism and don't benefit from rehabilitation programs. The research reveals why this is and can hopefully improve childhood interventions to prevent violence and behavior therapies to reduce recidivism. Thus, the goal of the research is to improve outcome from rehabilitation programs and reduce recidivism, which means uh, these people, when they do get out of prison, if they do, go on to commit more crimes. Psychopathic offenders are different from regular criminals in many ways. Regular criminals are hyper-responsive to threat, quick-tempered and aggressive, whereas psychopaths have a very low response to threats, are cold, and their aggression is premeditated. Evidence is now accumulating to show that both types of offenders present abnormal but distinctive brain development from a young age. And therefore, the solution to this problem would be to improve childhood interventions to prevent them from going on to be 
being psychopathic offenders. In order to develop programs that prevent offending and rehabilitation programs that reduce re-offending, it is essential to identify the brain mechanisms underlying the psychopath's persistent violent behavior. They have been using magnetic resonance imaging to study brain structure and function in a sample of violent offenders in England, one group with psychopathy and one without, and a sample of healthy non-offenders. They have found structural abnormalities in both gray matter and specific white matter areas among the violent offenders who are psychopaths. Now, gray matter, as we talked about before in another article, is the cell bodies. It's mostly involved with processing information and cognition, while the white matter are kind of the conduits of information, and it coordinates the flow of information between different parts of the brain. Twelve violent offenders without, sorry, with antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy 20 violent offenders with antisocial personality disorder but not psychopathy and 18 healthy non-offenders participated in the study. They had been convicted of murder, rape, attempted murder, and grievous bodily harm. <clears throat> and researchers ob observed reductions in gray matter volumes on both sides of the brain in specific structures. These brain regions they found the differences in were involved in empathy, the processing of pro-social emotions such as guilt and embarrassment and moral reasoning. Not surprising then that these brain regions had abnormalities since these are qualities offending psychopaths sorely lack. Abnormalities were also found in other areas that are specifically associated with lack of em empathy. These same regions are involved in learning from rewards and punishment. In order to engage in appropriate behavior, it is essential to learn from punishment, both real and imagined. Offenders may have the capacity to learn from punishment, but in childhood, both psychopathic and non-psychopathic offenders alike are repeatedly punished by parents and teachers for breaking rules and assaulting others, and from adolescence onward, they are frequently incarcerated, yet they persist engaging in violent behavior towards others. Thus, punishment does not appear to modify their behavior. While inside the brain scanner, the violent offenders and non-offenders completed a task that assessed their ability to adjust their behavior when the consequences of their responses changed from positive to negative. When these violent offenders completed neuropsychological tasks, they failed to learn from punishment cues to change their behavior in the face of changing contingencies and made poorer quality decisions despite longer periods of deliberation. Deciding on what to do involves generating a list of possible actions weighing the negative and positive consequences of each and hopefully choosing the behavior most likely to lead to a positive outcome. Offenders with psychopathy may only consider the possible positive consequences and fail to take account of the likely negative consequences. Then their behavior often leads to punishment 
rather than reward as they had expected. Conduct problems and the antecedents of psychopathy emerge early in life when learning-based interventions have the potential to alter brain structure and functioning. Programs that teach parents optimal parenting skills lead to significant reductions in conduct problems among their children, except among those who are callous and insensitive to others. As this study and others show, the abnormalities of brain structure and function associated with persistent violent behavior are subtle and complex. The results of these studies are providing insights into the brain mechanisms characterizing adult violent offenders that may be used in designing programs to reduce recidivism. The results also provide hypotheses about the abnormal development of violent offenders that can be tested in studies of children. This information is critical to the development of programs to prevent violent criminality. Since most violent crimes are committed by men who display conduct problems from a young age, learning-based interventions that target the specific brain mechanisms underlying this behavior pattern and thereby change the behavior would significantly reduce violent crime. Well, while the research certainly is very interesting and provocative and points a way to uh, look at children who are early on showing these negative behaviors and try to intervene to make sure they don't go on to be violent offenders as an adult, assumes that families in the legal system would cooperate in getting these children into this treatment and that somehow someone would be able to pay for it. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope till we get together next time you have a wonderful stress-free week, but if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.